Today our scripture reading is taken from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. The Word of God. This morning, we meet Sedai. We meet her in the genealogies of Scripture. I know, we've got one in every family who loves the genealogies, right? Kind of the nerdy, nerdy types. Don't mention any names. The Bible has genealogies. It's like Ancestry.com without all the cool graphs and charts. Well, this is where we meet Sedai. Only don't discard the genealogies too quickly. I'm going to read from chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. This is actually how Sedai's story begins. These are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur in the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcha. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcha and, and Ushka. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife. They went out together from Ur of Chaldeans and went to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now keep your Bibles open, please, if you have a Bible app or your Bible open. There's no pause here. I know it. there's a chapter break, verse 12, but there's no break in the story. Chapter 12, verse 1, the verses we just read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be the blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And we have everything we need here for a great story. It turns out the genealogy people are either simply curious or they love great stories, right? Don't disregard the genealogies too soon, church. For the God of this story has been silent for ten years. For ten years we've heard nothing from God, and now God speaks. Have you been waiting on God? Eight weeks? Eight months? Or a lot longer? Well, maybe you'll relate to Sedai. Her name is later changed to Sarah. Abrams is changed to Abraham. This morning I'll use those names we're more familiar with, Sarah and Abraham. And their story really begins with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that first pair that God promised to bless. It turned out creation refused to be creation in that story. And the divine blessing is interrupted. And Adam and Eve are sent east of Eden. They're the first sojourners, wanderers the first to live in exile, but longing for home. And then we come to Noah and his family and the ark and, and, and a catastrophic flood. And when they exit the ark and looked at their washed world, they decide to take that same creator up on his promise. 
It's only a few verses later, though, before Noah is cursing his son and his grandson. He curses them right on out of the family. And here we go with the second group of people who are wanderers, exile, longing for home. This is when we come to the story of Sarah. For ten generations, the God of Adam and Eve and the God of Noah's family has been silent, but not now. During those ten generations, people tried everything to make their own lives great, including building a city with a tower. If the silent God won't speak, maybe we can build a tower up to that God's home, the Tower of Babel. That didn't end well either. Those people also scattered wanderers, sojourning in exile, longing for a home they've not yet imagined. This is how we get to our genealogy in Genesis chapter 12. This is round three, if anyone's counting this morning. This is one of the large stories, the beginning of Hebrew faith, of Jewish faith. Father Abraham, we all know this patriarch. This is the Abraham we teach our children to sing of during vacation Bible school, right? This is the Abraham, the one big hero at the beginning of the story. Abraham gets the promise of the life, his lifetime. Oh, God has been silent, but God's not silent now. And if you heard, there are five promises wrapped in that one paragraph. I'll list them off again. God says, I, I will make you a great nation. That means I will give you um, your name, and I will give you numbers. I will multiply you. I will bless you with land and crops and fields. I will make your name great. You're not going to have to build a tower up to anyone. I'll make your name great. Stop building silly towers. The next promise, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. We have to slow down when we read that promise. I will bless those who bless you is plural, as if to expect many blessings. I'll curse those who curse you. It's singular, as if to say, your agitators will be few in this land. It's not only that, though. Those who curse you, those who make your life difficult, two different words for curse. Those who make your life difficult, your opponents, I will curse. I will withhold my protection and blessing. They'll wander in this land without my protection. And finally, God says to Abraham, all families are going to be blessed through you. It's an ambiguous promise. We don't really know what it means. We know it means God has good will and generosity to all, towards all of creation, and somehow Abraham's going to be part of this. We have to keep reading the story. Don't really know what that last promise means. But there are five promises wrapped all together. The God who was silent is not silent now. Oh, no, no, no. The promise, if we listened carefully, it's beyond generous. The promise is unbelievable. The, the promise is almost a little bit ludicrous, though, and laughable. If a careful reader was reading or a careful listener heard, here's why I would say that. How can the promise be ludicrous and laughable? Well, if we heard this is an old couple and a landless couple and a wandering couple, they've left a cosmopolitan city in Ur. They don't actually have a home yet. God said, I'm taking you to a city. He's given them no directions or map. Canaan, we eventually learn that's where they're headed. I'm going to give you this land, but by the way, there are already people on that land. It would be a big promise if God said, I'm going to give you this land and I'll clear off the people. But God doesn't. I'm going to give you the land, but the land has people on it. Well, you're going to have to deal with that. We, we have to take the land and the people. The people have to become our neighbors. We have to live with them. We have to get along with them. Really, God? Is that your promise? 
But keep listening. In Genesis 11, verse 30, we hold still right here and notice also. Verse 30 says, Sedai was barren and she had no child. Either one of those lines is enough. She's barren and she has no child. It's a little bit redundant, right? We get it. It's like saying he's bald and he has no hair. We get it already. It's sad. It's hopeless. Also, she has no parents listed in the genealogy, no family. Sarah wanders into this story with no past and no future. And I hold still in this part of the story this morning with Sarah. God wants to make Abraham great. Give him land. Give him descendants. Give him flocks. Give him fields. Make his name great. Bless all the people through Abraham. And he's given him a wife who appears to make this impossible. What is this promise God's giving Abraham? Is it a bad joke or is it a demonic deity? What, what is it? Sarah seems to be an obstacle in Abram's story. Abram is told to leave everything. Did you hear that? Leave everything. Your father's land, your father's possessions, all of your people. But he takes Lot along, if you heard me read that. It's like he, he grabs Lot for good measure, kind of like an ace in his pocket, just in case he can't have a big family with Sarah. Is that what's going on? Is this a bad joke? Is this a demonic deity? For a few weeks, we're going to look at stories like this, large sagas of sojourners, wanderers, people who are in exile, people who are on the move. People in exile are, are displaced, and they're disoriented. Scripture will use word, the word exile to represent all of these people and, and will describe exile with words like wilderness and hardship and famine and trouble. One author says we should notice that we're on a pilgrimage, not a picnic. We're pilgrims, not picnickers. Pilgrim people people who live in exile, people who are away from home, people who are disconnected from their familiar. When we read these stories in the Bible, when we consider the Bible as a whole, actually, we learn that exile is the human condition. Physical exiles, spiritual exiles, theological exiles, relational exiles, we can have emotional exiles, we can have exiles of our own making. Exile stories, they're really displacement stories. In 2020, we have a tiny taste of this, don't we, right? When our rhythms are interrupted, when they're not only threatened, but they seem to evaporate, we get a little anxious too, right? Last week when we asked some of the kids of the congregation to tell us what it's been like sheltering at home, they sent in some videos and we learned that our kids are, well, they're missing their friends and they're eating and they're playing games with their family and they're eating and they're doing puzzles and they're eating and they're doing homework and they're eating and, and it was this one First grader, Nia Marr, who caught my attention, listened to her explanation of sheltering at home. So, um, we're going to talk about what am I doing to home. Like, so, like, we're going to, like, like, we're going on Zoom all the time. It's a new normal thing, but we have to, like, do some stuff. Like, we have to do all this stuff to go on Zoom. It's pretty hard, and um, we have to do a lot of layers to, like, go on Zoom. And, um, um. Yeah, we feel your pain, Neymar. Zoom. Zoom. 
Zoom is not our friend. Tell the truth. See, we, we long to be settled. We long to have rituals and rhythms. We long to put our roots down deep. We long to, to have planned lives, not chaos. If we could choose, we, you and me, we choose the predictable and the planned, not the uncertain and the chaotic. This is what we learn from sojourning stories, from those who wander and those who journey. We struggle. And there seems to be this gap between what God promises and the reality that we live. The gap between what God promises and where we live. And we will be tempted in this gap to solve our own problems. We'll be tempted, we'll struggle between faith and unfaith. Between taking God at God's word and doing it on our own. Will God keep God's word? Can Abraham and Sarah actually trust this God is it time to build another tower yet? Should we go and gather all of the supplies? Should we, put, should we get Lot and take him along in the story just in case we can't trust this God? Can this couple trust the large promises of God? The first challenge is just up ahead with the famine. Abraham can go back home where it's safe, but he chooses to go down to Egypt. He makes some say what would be the natural choice, not necessarily the wise choice. He goes to Egypt and they get in trouble. Abraham himself will struggle between, with this gap between God's promises and the reality where Abram lives. And I want to hold still in the story this moment and notice something more. Abraham is having an experience. So is Sarah. In this story, Sarah is also having an experience when Abraham packs up his life post-promise, when he packs up his life Listen again to the instruction, Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abraham, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram is 75 years old when he departs Haran. Sarah will be listed next in the possessions that Abraham packs when leaving for the promised land. We don't hear her voice. She's not spoken to. She's spoken of. Sarah is silent now for a long while in the story. Now listen, we know near ancient East culture, we get it, right? We know this era. We know storytellers choose the stories they'll tell. We know people shape the stories that we read in the Bible. We know that's just how it was, and that's dismissive. Sarah is also having an experience in this story that ought not keep us from hearing Sarah. What's it like to be lost in someone else's story? What's it like to be taken along as a possession? What's it like to be a tag-along to the hero? What's it like when no one asks your permission? What's it like when Abraham does it all? What's it like when you have no power to change the equation? Every teenager listening to my voice this morning knows what I'm talking about. Sarah's having an experience too. What's it like for Sarah when they go down to Egypt because there's a famine and, and Abram, Abraham says to her, listen dear, you're so beautiful, just pretend that you're my sister and, th and that way the men will be nice to me and they'll give me things. What does it feel like when that happens a second time in another city when Abraham says to the king, um, she's my sister, not my wife. What does it feel like when your husband gives you to the king as part of the king's harem? Sarah's having an experience, too. When we sojourn in exile, and when we're longing for home, 
we need to be aware of the gap between God's promises and the reality where we live. Somewhere in between is where we kind of dwell. God's promises and the reality where we live. We toggle between faith and unfaith, trusting God and doing it ourselves. Abraham has that challenge. Sarah will have that same struggle when it's her turn with her caretaker, Hagar. She will have her own decisions to make. And she'll find she struggles with the same thing, to trust God's promises or to take care of it herself. As sojourners, we're tempted. We're tempted in this space to forget about the promises of God and And we'll be tempted to take on the culture all around us. We'll be tempted to listen to the biggest voices. We'll be tempted by the the large punch. We'll be tempted to take up all the space in the story and all the oxygen in the room. Sometimes we'll even be tempted to tell stories, to make up stories. Sojourners, we can be tempted in all of these ways. They're telling us right now that of the conspiracy theories going around the world to try and understand what's happening to us in 2020, It seems to be the highly religious people that believe these conspiracy stories and who share them. Why is that, church? What is it about highly religious people that we believe and share conspiracy stories? The experts say it's because religious people have questions and we know there are answers. We believe there are answers to our questions, even if we have to create some of those answers. I watched again this week the Netflix special, Waco, Our Siblings, The Branch Davidians, to be reminded again what happens when we make up stories when we're so busy searching for answers. What can happen when we make ourselves great? Sojourners, wanders. This will be part of our temptation. Are we waiting on God today or are we attempting to solve it ourselves? Standing in the gap. Does anyone resonate with this, with Sarah? Sarah, by the way, who says, I I didn't choose any of this. No one asked me. So I watched this week on Thursday. I heard that the Air Force planes would be flying over Riverside. I turned on the live feed on my computer and I began to listen as the reporter said, the planes are headed up I-15 south, they're headed north, they're headed towards Corona. I listened, oh, they're over Corona, they're going to take a loop over the Corona Regional Medical Center as the plane tipped their wings in honor of all these healthcare workers. Now they're turning and they're headed towards Riverside, she said. They'll be right off of Magnolia Avenue, Riverside, uh, Kaiser Riverside Hospital. Now they're headed towards downtown Riverside, she said. I realized when she said they're headed towards the 210 and the 10 interchange. If I would simply go outside, I could watch this happen. And I I did. I ran outside, and, and here were these planes right above my head. I had no idea how touched I would feel. The planes are turning towards San Bernardino, she said, and I watched it happen as they flew over St. B's and then they looped back around. They're headed to Loma Vista, she kept saying. Loma Vista, I kept correcting her. Loma Linda, they're going to Loma Linda. Pretty soon she said, they're headed to Loma Linda. There they are. Is that the Children's Hospital? I believe it is. That's the Loma Linda University Children's Hospital. She said, I think we have one more hospital before they head to the desert. You do, you do. I'm out in my backyard. The VA hospital, the veterans hospital, the Pettis hospital. And sure enough, they flew over it. And the reporter said, oh, look at all the workers who've come out of the hospital. I didn't expect to see them. Look at all of them. 
I didn't expect to be so deeply touched as, that I, as I looked at an employee pool who didn't choose this. No one asked them. No one asked them if they wanted to interrupt their days and step into the chaos. You are hospital workers and pharmacists. You're working at skilled nursing facilities and government centers. You're working in grocery stores and gas stations and, and uh, yes, pharmacies and emergency stations all across the city and the county. No one asked you. We see you today. We thank you today. Thank you for going out, for gearing up, for getting things done. I have a friend who lost a partner in the last few weeks who summarized this well, what it feels like to sojourn. This person said to me, you know, no one asked me. No one asked me, would, would you like your life interrupted today? Would you like to have pain like you've never endured before? Would you like to start your life over again in the middle of your life? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you want to actually really be challenged? No one asked me because if someone asked me, I would have said, no, no, thank you. I don't sign up for this. I don't want any of it. Maybe someone's listening today who resonates with my friend. Nobody asked me. Nobody asked us. Do we want this in 2020? I mean, are we really going to cancel summer? There's no Hollywood Bowl. There's no vacation Bible school. Nobody asked me. Are we canceling graduations? No one asked me. Are we canceling celebrations and parties and lifetime achievements because nobody asked me? Are we canceling weddings? Are we canceling visits to our loved ones in the hospital? Are we canceling funerals? Because nobody asked me. No one actually asked me. In the Christian journey, this is when we tell people, we'll simply trust the promises of God, cling to the promises of God, stand on the promises we say, lean on those everlasting arms. I'm going to tell you, church, that I'm not very good at this Christian speak. I don't actually know what it means to cling to the promises of God. So I'm going to tell you how I work it out, if you'll stay with me for a minute. Those of us who live our lives in the gap, this space of unrealized promises. Later in the Bible, there'll be another exile community. First Peter will refer to that community as an exile group and will say to them, be very careful while you're living in the gap, you will be tempted. Live in humble awareness of God's presence. Live in humble awareness. For me, that, that, that I can understand. This is the choice I make every day. I will not allow people or circumstances to come between me and God. I, I will not allow people to drive a wedge between me and God. It turns out God is on my side. God is on your side. And here's the rub. God is on everyone's side. So it is that we've got a lot of problems and God is not one of them. This is what it means to me when we say cling to the promises of God. Will God keep those large and looming promises from Abraham and Sarah? Is God capable of doing what God says? Sojourners, wanderers, people who live in exile, so many of us who wander in this world. I will not let God become one of my problems. I'm hanging on to God.